Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Request for Explanation podcast. Thank you for listening. Today we have me, Carol Nichols. Me, Alexi Bangesner. Me, Manish. And me, Aaron Turan. And we're discussing RFC 2052, which proposes a way to evolve Rust using the concept of epochs. Aaron, could you give us a quick rundown of the RFC? Uh, for example, what's an epoch? What kinds of changes could be made in a new epoch? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are sort of two main goals of the RFC. Um, the most obvious one is we want to make changes to Rust that might involve breaking some code, like introducing a new keyword, which might currently be used as an identifier. Um, and we want a way to do this that is not painful for people, right? So we made we made a promise at 1.0 that uh, you should always be able to upgrade to the latest Rust compiler without a lot of hassle. Things should pretty much just work. And we care a lot about that promise. Uh, and we want to retain that going into the future. But we would also like to be able to add new keywords now and again, um, and, and other similar levels of changes. Uh, so, so that's one motivation. Uh, another motivation is you know, that we want a way to sort of talk about big steps in Rust's evolution, or sometimes like chapters in the story of, of Rust. Uh, and so this RFC kind of like couples those two ideas together, um, where we're accumulating a bunch of new features and idioms, and when you put these all together, they represent a new way to write Rust, and might also involve you know adding some some keywords or, or some breakage. Um, so that's the goal. The problem is, of course, if we just introduce a new keyword in a new version of the compiler, people download that, their code could break. So the question is, how do we actually retain our stability promise? Uh, and, and so that's where the idea of epochs come in. So basically, you can think of this as separating out uh, the versioning that the compiler is using and the version of the language that you're using. So that new versions of the compiler can always handle old versions of the language. So the epoch represents basically what language version you're on. And in the RFC, uh, we just use a year to represent the, the epoch. Um, so currently, we are in the 2015 epoch, because that's when Rust officially started at 1.0. Um, and maybe we would have a 2018 epoch. So then the idea is, in your cargo toml, uh, or perhaps a compiler flag, you can say um, what epoch you would like the compiler to use. Uh, and even when you know Rust 1.50 comes out, and that's on epoch 2027 or whatever, you can still have epoch 2015 in your cargo toml, and your code should continue to work just as it did before. Um, the other really important aspect of this is different crates in your dependency graph can use different epochs than you do. Um, they can be using older ones or newer ones, so you can mix and match freely. And that means that uh, you know not only is your code not breaking when you update to a new compiler, but in fact the ecosystem doesn't get split up along epoch lines. Everything is still capable of working with, with everything else. Um, the only sort of painful aspect here is that if you do want to take advantage of some new feature that requires a new keyword, you might have to rename some of your identifiers or something. But that's about as good as it could ever get uh, for, for things like introducing keywords. Uh, so 
what major questions have come up since you posted the RFC? So unsurprisingly, the RFC has garnered a few comments. Um, it was about 172 last I looked, and it's been posted for just a few days. Uh, so lots of questions have been raised. Um, I think one of the most immediate reactions people had was, aren't you just going through a lot of marketing mumbo jumbo for what amounts to making breaking changes? It, why not just use Semver and call this Rust 2.0 because that's what it really is? Um, and you know, I, that's a it's a really interesting point. So part of the reason the RFC is the way it is uh, is that you know the, the core team in sort of talking about this proposal uh, before we put it together, uh, we were very worried that if we came out with Rust 2.0, people would think that it was completely breaking, that we were sort of dropping our stability promise on the floor and that you wouldn't be able to upgrade without significantly changing your code. And so we wanted to be really clear that that's not what's happening. New versions of the Rust compiler will always support old, old versions of the code. Um, but this may have backfired. I don't know. It seems like this ended up perhaps creating more confusion uh, than clarity. And it may be simpler for people to understand that, uh, sure, there's a Rust 2.0 and 3.0, but every Rust has a compatibility option for older versions of Rust. Um, that, that might be a, an easier way for people to think about it. So yeah, so one of the big questions that came up was just why not use uh, new major versions, semantic versioning, et cetera. Um, yeah, I can iterate on more questions if you want or if you have more. Okay, uh, so uh, another line of questioning uh, that came up is, uh, you know, at, at the beginning I talked about two different motivations for uh, this mechanism, right? So one is the breaking change aspect, and that's where like most of the mechanics are playing a role. And the other is this idea of sort of rallying around uh, release. Um, and so people have basically complained that the RFC is conflating these two goals um, and, and argued that it might be better to separate it. Um, and I should clarify a little bit. So it's pretty obvious why we might want to uh, introduce a new keyword. It might be a little less obvious what I mean about sort of rallying around a release. Um, so this, is, this really comes out of the Rust rapid release model. Right, so since 1.0, every six weeks, we've produced a new version of Rust. And uh, features, you know, ship on those new versions basically as they become ready. Like, because it's such a fast cycle, releases are not high stakes. If you miss a train, there's another one coming uh, not too far down the line. Um, so there's not this pressure to rush things. Uh, and, you know, I think that served us really well. We've been able to grow the language a lot in, in a sort of incremental style. But the model does have some downsides. Uh, so one of the big downsides is uh, it, you know, those, those incremental changes over a long period of time really add up so that the, the language you're writing today is very different uh, than the language you were writing two years ago. But we don't really have a way as a community to talk about that shift coherently. 
um, one compiler version is not that different from, from another, you know, the, the particular version numbers don't really mean a lot. Uh, and you can see this even more strongly when you start thinking about things like books uh, written about Rust, like the official Rust book, for example, which already is targeting a somewhat out-of-date version of Rust as features are stabilizing. Uh, so there's always a question of like, well, should, you know, do we want to try to sneak this last feature into the book, et cetera. Uh, so what, you know, what we're interested in is some way of clearly delineating that a whole bunch of features have come into Rust and they form some coherent new whole. We have updated the book, we've updated other documentation, the libraries have followed suit, et cetera. So we have this polished coherent product that we're shipping and we can start calling that Rust 2018 and everybody sort of knows what that means. Uh, so, you know, that, that kind of rallying point serves a lot of different people in different ways. Um, it's useful as a way of talking about what Rust you're writing, like what sort of chapter of Rust development, as I said. It's useful for the community as a, a rallying point around our efforts to say, okay, you know, in the second half of 2018, we are going to put out the next epoch of Rust. Here's what that's going to, you know, consist of. Now let's come together as a community and get that thing done. That's, that's really powerful and, and the rapid release model doesn't lend itself very well to that, that kind of rallying. And then, of course, there's the sort of marketing release aspect of it that by having, by singling out these bigger releases where everything is hit a coherent point, uh, you know, we, we sort of have a story to tell the outside world that, hey, Rust has taken this really big step. This is a good time to come back and check it out if you, you know, haven't been sticking around. Um, so, as you can probably tell, I really care a lot about this goal. Um, I think I think it's really important and could do a lot of good for the Rust community. Um, but I, I understand people's concern that um, it's, there are downsides to coupling that rallying story with the story for breakage. So people have, have wondered, like, the rallying story we want to do on a regular basis, right? Maybe every two or three years. But we don't necessarily want to introduce new keywords or other uh, breaking changes every two or three years. Um, if we sort of say we get a new epoch every two or three years, won't it be much more tempting to introduce those breaking changes and so on? Um, and I think that's an absolutely legitimate point. Uh, but what I haven't seen yet in the discussion is a compelling alternative story where these two uh, motivations are really decoupled, um, where we have one mechanism for breakage and then a different one for somehow rallying people around releases and and we get an understandable story uh, from the whole thing. So I guess I should say one other thing on that topic, which is basically the epoch proposal is very close to what C++ currently does. Um, there, there are some important tweaks uh, connected to our release channels, um, but this is how the C++ language evolves. So this is not like completely untrodden ground, and I think people have been pretty happy with the both the pace in which C++ is evolving and the stability that C++ has. So it's interesting that you mentioned C++. Uh, so maybe I'm mistaken here, but my understanding of the way C++ does it is CS for stood equal uh, 2011 or whatever the flag is. You don't 
randomly get some parts of 2014, right? You only get 2011, right? Yeah, um, so that's, you're sort of hitting on another important question that came up. Um, people, I, as an aside, I should say, as always, I'm blown away by the Rust community's ability to instantly find holes and, and missing bits of specification. So like within hours after I posted it, there were tons of questions I hadn't even thought about. So one of the things the RFC wasn't clear on is, um, so new compilers support old epochs, but what features are available in those epochs? Since most features won't require, um, you know, new keywords or breaking changes. And uh, so the, the RFC doesn't have an opinion on this. I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, I think most people involved in discussions are sort of leaning toward we should allow old, old epochs to use new features where applicable. Um, but obviously, so there are pros and cons, right? Um, that the, the obvious pro is you can wait to upgrade your code base to the new epoch and still get a lot of, you know, the new goodies coming out, um, which sort of decreases, it's, it's another mitigation against the small amount of breakage we're talking about. But on the flip side, the sort of rallying release aspect is maybe muddied a little bit um, if you can use most of the new features still on the old epoch. Um, I personally don't think that's a big deal. I think it's, you know, a rallying point is, is mostly just a social thing that like, okay, this is the big one um, and we're gonna try to have everything sort of nicely lined up at this point. And, you know, the fact that people can use some of that stuff on older versions doesn't seem like a big deal to me. So I think another issue with um, not allowing newer features on older epochs in a newer compiler is that the whole concept of the core language, which was outlined in the RFC, gets a bit more muddied because a feature can be anywhere in the language, whereas epochs are mostly focused on breaking changes to a certain part of the language. And this is a bit tricky to deal with otherwise, I think. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I think in my rundown of the RFC, I didn't go into a lot of detail on that core language piece. So, so let me just expand on that slightly. Um, so, you know, one of the potential downsides to promising to always support old versions of Rust is if we're making really drastic changes to the language, that might make the compiler really complicated. It has to handle very different understandings of Rust. And also it makes the library interoperation story a lot harder, right? Because that one of the one of the basic constraints here is you should always be able to use libraries at other epochs, so that should be fine. Um, so the RFC basically proposes that uh, by the time you hit near in the compiler, so that's our intermediate representation, um, basically before we start doing optimizations in code gen. Uh, by the time you hit that level, all of the epoch stuff should have boiled away. So all, all of Rust will always share a single mirror, and that's basically all we need for the library compatibility story to, to a first approximation. It it's at least covers the hard bits of that. Um, so that means the pieces that we can change in an epoch are mostly limited to front-end things like parsing, so the things like keywords, um, but also type checking, type inference, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so 
then I think what, what Manish is sort of getting at is, uh, of course, adding new features to Rust may also involve adding new stuff to Mirror in general, um, but that's not really tied into the EPUG. And so it could sort of, uh, allowing these features to float back to old versions could confuse the story around what EPUGs are and what they're allowed to do. Um, but I kind of, my gut feeling is that when, you know, we're harping on these things because this is a lot of new mechanism, but if and when we actually roll this out and get used to it, a lot of these, you know, fiddly questions just won't really come up. Um, and, you know, it'll just be, you know, a thing that we're used to doing every couple of years, bumping the epoch, not a big deal. Yeah, another so, aspect of the RFC that uh, we haven't talked about yet is the, the preview epoch and deprecations. Could you talk about how that would work a little bit? Yeah, um, yeah, thanks for the reminder. So um, another really important aspect of this design is that you should have a lot of warning about what is coming in the next epoch. Uh, so if you are, you know, following the usual style in the Rust community of upgrading your compiler basically every six weeks, um, because that's relatively painless, and you're taking care of deprecations as you go, then transitioning to the next epoch should be totally painless. Um, so to make that more crisp, uh, we actually have, the RFC proposes a rule that essentially the only thing a new epoch can do is turn things that were previously deprecations into hard errors. And if you think about uh, like concretely how we use this. So, you know, right now uh, we have a merged RFC that involves adding a catch keyword as part of the, the question mark um, operator. And we have an implementation, but it turned out that we can't actually add catch even as a contextual keyword um, for various technical reasons. Basically it could break code. Uh, and so right now it's available in nightly under the keyword do space catch, um, which nobody wants, right? But we can get away with because do was already a keyword. So we really want to stabilize this with catch as the keyword. Um, and, and the question is how would we use the epoch process to do it? And so basically at some point we would deprecate the use of catch as an identifier, meaning that you know, your code would still compile, but the, the compiler would start complaining and saying that, hey, you should think about renaming this variable or this API to something else because in a forthcoming epoch, it's gonna turn into a keyword. Um, and then when the epoch shifts, it does turn into the keyword, which means most of those uses, basically all of the uses as identifiers are going to become errors. But you had warning all along the way that this was coming. And of course, just to be clear, you, you do have to opt into the new epoch for that to become an error, right? It's not forced on you. Um, so that's, that's the, the basic model, and, and that's, I think that is a really strong guarantee for people that basically if your code is deprecation clean um, on the last compiler of the previous epoch, then when you move to the next compiler and upgrade epochs, everything will just work. You will have no errors and your code will continue doing what it did before. Um, that's a pretty strong guarantee. So there's one other piece to making this all work though, um, which is 
you know, we talked earlier about the rapid release process and how important it is that we can stabilize features as they become ready rather than having a really high stakes release where we're trying to ship everything at the same time. Um, but if we have things like catch, which are ready to stabilize, like we could pretty much stabilize catch today except for this breakage, we don't want to wait to stabilize those things until the epoch release or else we'll be, we'll sort of lose those benefits of the rapid release model. We'll be back to a feature-based release. Uh, so we need some way to stabilize them in advance of the new epoch as they become ready without breaking existing code. Okay, so that's where this additional tweak of a preview epoch comes in. And so, so the basic story is, you know, at some point we decide that a new epoch is coming. And at that point, we need to know all of the deprecations that, that are going to become errors in that new epoch. We won't be able to add any more to that list. Then we can declare a preview epoch. And all that does is uh, lets you opt in to those deprecations becoming errors in advance. Right? So it's, it looks just like a normal epoch. So you'd write like, you know, uh, I think the RFC currently has it as 2015-next or maybe it would be 2018-preview, whatever. Um, so you still, there's still an opt-in to this breakage, but then we have a venue onto which we can stabilize uh, features like catch as they become ready. And then when, we're, when everything has landed and the book is updated and we're ready to go, we release the 2018 epoch proper. And at that point, the 2018 preview is deprecated and is just an alias for the 2018 epoch. Um, and I guess there's one, one other piece worth mentioning is, you know, I, I see this all as fitting into the existing Rust roadmap process where some years like this one, the roadmap is centered on laying a lot of groundwork, making some big progress. And then other years like perhaps 2018, uh, the focus is more tying up loose ends, polishing, getting everything to a coherent state, and shipping the whole thing in a new epoch. So wait, I'm, uh, I think I misunderstood something in the RFC text then. Uh, so even if I say I want to use the 2015 epoch, where catch is fine for me to use as a, a literal, I will get warnings that I'm using a deprecated thing? Yes. Interesting. So e even though I, I have explicitly stated I intend to be using these things that aren't allowed anymore, I'll, I'll get warnings. Huh. Yeah. Well, so, so if you think about the steady state once, once this is rolling, everybody's cargo tunnel is going to have an epoch declaration. In most cases, that's going to be the latest epoch. And if things continue as they do today, people will be upgrading their compiler you know, each time a new one comes out. And so it, in that world, it's like if the assumption is most people want to upgrade to the latest and greatest most of the time, then you know, signaling deprecations on that current channel uh, is sort of the, the way to make that process work uh, as smoothly as possible. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm just wondering if maybe you could have it so it's a warning while we're 
preparing 2018 preview or whatever, and then when 2018 preview just becomes 2018, we revert the warnings to silent, like they're allowed. So that anyone still using 2015, it's like, okay, you you said you're good with this, and we're just going to leave you alone. Ah, yeah, that's that's a pretty interesting idea. I think that makes a lot of sense. So how would this RFC affect me as a user? Like, it, For someone who is not involved in language design, uh, who doesn't really care about breaking changes per se or how to make breaking changes, how does it affect users? Um, yeah, great question. So I think the hope is that the main effect on you is you have greater clarity as to what is coming down the pike. Like suddenly, you know, Rust 2018 is a thing in your mind and you have some expectations of what, what that's going to entail and obviously when it's going to happen, at least within a year. Um, uh, so that, that number one. Uh, and then number two, in terms of your actual programming experience, you know, if, again, if you're upgrading the compiler regularly, you will see new deprecations as you already do today. And if you take care of those, um, then really the only other effect is when the new epoch comes out, you might go up, update a line in your cargo tunnel, um, and that's that's really it. So, you know, the hope is that it's fairly invisible at a mechanical level uh, to most users, at least if they're keeping up with Rust. Um, and what the primary effect is actually more of the the social or like rallying release effect. So how could community members help you move this RFC forward? Oh, man. <laughs> I wish I knew how I could help me move this RFC forward. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, like I said, there, there have been a number of really insightful comments, but there have also just been a number of comments, period. Um, and that always makes it hard um, you know, to, to sort of move things forward. Uh, I feel like one thing that often happens with highly visible and contentious RFCs like this is that people who basically think the RFC is a good idea and don't really have like a lot to say about it end up not saying much on the thread. And so instead you mostly hear from you know people who have concerns uh, and you know want to talk through those. And obviously like if people have concerns, they should raise them, but it can definitely, uh, you know, create it. Sort of, it, it can lead to a lack of clarity, I guess, around how the community feels about a certain proposal. Um, so, I mean, as a very crude way of thinking about this, like if you go to the top of the RFC and, and see the sort of like emoji responses, it looks like people are very positive. But if you read the comment thread, people sort of start out positive and then it like becomes very negative. And, you know, and I'm not saying like, I, so my feelings on, on this RFC have shifted over the course of the comment thread. I'm, I'm now sort of leaning more in the direction of using major version numbers in, instead of years. Um, like this is all really good, but you know, I think one way to help move things forward is just to hear from more people who like, like it <laughs> if if those people are actually out there um uh or yeah I, I don't know i mean i guess the risk though is like this sounds like an invitation for everybody to sort of write plus one comments and that doesn't necessarily help either so it's it's kind of a vexing issue 
Um, I think, okay, I guess to another way of saying this is like, there, there's been a lot of discussion on core issues, but there's also been a lot of discussion on details and the details matter, but they maybe don't matter yet. Um, so there have probably been a dozen comments on the question of whether Rust-C should default to the current epoch uh, or 2015 if you don't pass in a flag. Now that's a super important detail in the long run, but it doesn't matter. It's not a detail worth hashing out right now if we're going to end up not doing epoch at all or doing something radically different, right? So I think probably more realistically than saying, please come in plus one. <laughs> um, I think just for those who are participating, um, trying to stay focused on the really core elements and the trade-offs around those first, get consensus there and then move on to the details, uh, may, just makes the process a lot easier to follow. And one of the things I hope to do soon is basically write a comment that's trying to tease out what I see as those core concerns and the, the different options that are on the table and just see whether people agree with even that assessment. Because if we can at least agree that like, okay, here are the options, here are roughly the trade-offs and you know, maybe you think that one's better and I think this one is better, but at least we can agree that they both exist, right? That's, that's a step forward. So what challenges do you see in getting this actually landed? Uh, when you say landed, do you mean the RFC or the implementation? Oh, the RFC. The RFC. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's just the usual challenge around an RFC, which is, um, you know, the sort of <laughs> stamina to uh, shepherding the thread forward to consensus. Um, so right, right now, a lot of people are pulling in a lot of different directions. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the things I've realized on this topic is that people are eager to read into it sort of what they want to see. So like earlier versions of this proposal, you know, I would float to people and it seemed like they agreed. Um, and then when, when it sort of got fully fleshed out, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was imagining something totally different. Um, <laughs> and so I... I don't really know, like that just happens sometimes, um, and I don't really know any way through it other than to just keep talking and keep relentlessly trying to narrow it down to the core contentions um, and, and work out from there. Uh, yeah, like uh, one thing I think a lot of people originally perceived it as was this feature that a lot of people have wanted where they stand their cargo to Tomo, I require this version of the Rust compiler. Right. And this actually is like slightly weaker than that because it says, okay, you need Rust 2018, which let's say that's Rusty 1.2.0 or 1.20. Uh, yeah. But actually your code requires Rust 1.24 where we added some standard library thing. Um, so it's like, it says like, okay, use this epoch, which kind of implies a Rust compiler version, but is like just a lower bound. Yeah. Ironically, I had like the exact opposite reaction when I first heard this RFC. Like initially, I had this very <laughs> sterile reaction, which was, "You're going to break everything." 
Um, <laughs> then I like heard the details last week, and I was like, oh, this is actually a much more reasonable thing. Than I thought it was. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I will say, like, uh, I, I've been heartened by the fact that almost everybody seems to think the basic mechanics here make sense and are a reasonable step for Rust to take. It's mostly about, honestly, like, like I hate to say it, but it is kind of bike shedding, right? I mean, it, it's about what, how we label these versions, how we communicate this, what the policies are. Now, you know, I, I kind of hate the term bike shedding because I think that the color of paint is actually super important. <laughs> um, it turns out, uh, like, you know, version version schemes are all about communication and marketing, and we should think really hard about that. So I don't mean to disparage that discussion at all. I'm just saying yeah, that, you know, we've sort of we've got some agreement on some of the technical aspects, and it's more a question of how we think about it. Yeah, I I, I don't think it of it so much as bike shedding as this RFC is kind of like it has two aspects. There's the technical aspect, which I agree most people agree on. Uh, modulo the contingent of people who really want the like 17 feature flag system where you just have, yes. a, you have feature flags for all eternity and you keep adding them to your cargo that tunnel, which yeah. I am not a fan of. I don't think anyone on the core team is a fan of either. <laughs> uh, and then there's this social aspect, which is like a really big part of the RFC, which is like, how do we communicate about breaking changes? How do we communicate about just, there's lots of new features. You should be writing Rust in a slightly different way or a completely different way. Like maybe everyone, no one uses blocking IO in REST 2020 because futures are perfect and amazing. I, <laughs> I hope that's not true because I'm not, a, I'm not the biggest fan of writing future code, but you know, <laughs> uh, we'll get there. But yeah, I mean, so I guess, I guess part of what I'm getting at as a way of, of moving this forward or, you know, thinking about the challenges, like, uh, if we can get consensus around the mechanism just said, like, we want this. This is this is a useful thing to do. If we do it this way, the level of pain it imposes on the ecosystem is small enough that it's it's worth the benefit. Like that seem that consensus seems within reach, and it's probably worth trying to get that out there. Um, but again, it's always it's always hard. You know, if you write a comment that says, "Hey, does everybody agree on X?" You are missing out on the hundreds of people who you know clicked thumbs up and then unsubscribed from the thread because they didn't want to read the 172 comments. Um, and I, I really don't know how to deal with that. I mean, historically, we've sometimes dealt with that by like burning the old RFC to the ground and just doing a <laughs> brand new RFC. Yeah. Um, but that usually happens when we like make a radical pivot and like right. we want to make that clear. Right. Well, to be fair, this RFC does start by saying there won't be a, a Rust 2.0, and I'm currently considering rejiggering the RFC so that it proposes Rust 2.0, so that might be worthy of a close. <laughs> I yeah, know. I think if you do that, I would just close it and, re and start a new one. Um, yeah. Probably start it with, like, almost an FAQ of, like... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited about the A-B testing of these these two. It's essentially the same mechanism, but just naming it differently, as I think what you're proposing. Um, yeah. So I think I mean, it's going to be interesting, our uh, A-B test of the community. It, it is a bit different in the sense of I expect with the 2.0 proposal, you will get that feature that 
people thought it was where you can just say like what Rusty version do you need? So like if, if you can specify I want Rust 2.0, why not Rust 2.3, right? Like that's basically free to add at that point. Yeah. Whereas with the epochs, it was, it was weird. There was like two versioning schemes and it was hard to talk about both at once. Yeah, but it's also that the, if you merge the two versioning schemes, then you lose that, that the thing that you can use the newer compiler for older features and it's a bit tricky to talk about that, especially when if we go in the way of not having um, of not having new features or of having new features work on new compilers on older epics or on older Rust STDs or whatever. Well, it, it would still be a lower bound, just like uh, versions are on like any cargo.toml, right? Like if I say I want bin code 1.0, bin code 1.1 is just fine, right? But I think there is actually, there's an issue here. It's, it's subtle, but um, Yehuda was actually bringing this up yesterday. Uh, so let's imagine um, some new feature comes out in Rust 2.6, uh, like, um, okay, I'll make everyone sad and say, associated type constructors, <laughs> we have to wait all the way until 2.6. Um, Aaron, Aaron, they're called generic type aliases. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, at least I didn't say HTTP. Uh, so anyway, um, so that feature, at least is currently designed, does not require new keywords. So we could allow it to be used um, in older epochs on that version of the compiler. Now say you have some code that was written in 1.x era Rust um, and uses the catch keyword, or uses catch as an identifier, rather. Um, and you are not ready to take the plunge into the 2.x series, um, but you want to start using, what was it, generic type aliases? Um, Actually, I think it was ACCs, like generic ACCs, associated whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Some whiz-bang new feature. Um, and so now, now you're kind of stuck because, you, because we've completed these two things, right? Because you want to say, like, oh, I want the 2.x compiler, but I want the 1.x uh, compatibility mode, right? So there's actually it may not be a good idea to bundle these things together. Right, well, this, this was kind of why uh, I mentioned uh, off, off, off the RFC thread the idea of having a monotonically increasing uh, middle version number. So we don't go from 1.19 to 2.0, we go to 1.19 to 2.20. And then you could actually say like, well, I want 1.23 which is like the right. G3 standard library, but the 1.0 standard. <laughs> right. So version, I'm not sure if that's actually like, tenable, but that is one <laughs> way to express that. I mean, it, so I feel like these are all sort of equivalent at some level, right? Because that, what you're saying is essentially the same as having the compiler always stay in the 1.x series and then having a separate epoch for declaring the compatibility mode. Um, you know, I mean, the point is yeah, there but it's are, one field this way. Yeah, right. <laughs> and as we said, bike setting is important. Um, but we start with the core mechanism, and the core mechanism is, you know, there are two potentially separable mobs here of what compatibility mode and what compiler. And in fact, the whole point is to let those knobs vary independently. Uh, and so then it's just a question of how best to, to surface that and, and talk about it. Uh, one quick question. Uh, so it was brought up this issue of um, 
it doesn't matter if old libraries can use keywords if they actually surface those keywords in public APIs. Uh, because new libraries, their keywords, they can't call a function called catch or whatever. Uh, is that existential to your RFC, or do you consider that just a detail that they'll hash out later? Um, it's it's a detail. Um, maybe we should hash that out as part of the RFC. There, there are a bunch of ways to deal with it. I think one of the more promising ones is what I think it was C Sharp that does something like this, where you can write uh, an at symbol before um, an identifier, and even if it would have been a keyword, it's treated as an identifier, um, which could actually be useful in some uh, code generation scenarios as well. Um, so, you know, something like that, or there, there are a handful of other ideas. I think it's a very surmountable problem. So what I hear you saying is we should bring back sigils. Well, yeah, we should add more sigils, clearly. I mean, the thing is, like, the at sigil has already been reserved for, like, three different possible features. So, I don't know. We might have to, like, dig into at at or something. Long live twiddle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, also, what is the consensus on how you pronounce epoch? Oh, I think Carol has some thoughts on this. Well, so my, my opinion is that if you say epic, which is how I would prefer to pronounce it, it sounds too much like E-P-I-C, which is not necessarily a bad thing, because you'd be like, epic Rust 2018. <laughs> but it can be confusing. So I've been saying it epoch, but Manish, you came up with an interesting new pronunciation. So my problem is that epoch reminds me of Unix epoch, and it's like, I mean, it's too much of a reminder. So epoch is even better because it doesn't remind you of anything aside from stealing chickens off the internet. And Rust isn't really about stealing chickens off the internet, so epoch is perfect. <laughs> But I have to say it has been kind of hilarious talking about this in the last few core team meetings because half of the room uses epoch and half of the room uses epic and neither half of the room is willing to give up. So we should do both. So just to be clear, is epic like actually the like proper English pronunciation of that word? I You're talking about <laughs> English here. Proper. What, what what does that word mean? <laughs> I don't know. Those dictionary, dictionaries have like those squiggles and whatever to say like, oh, you pronounce O like this. On that note, I think we've covered all the major issues regarding this RFC. Um, and I would encourage everyone to go read this and potential future RFCs and vote with the emojis because that's totally what we're going to use to make our final decision. Although, don't use the thumbs up anymore. Use the hearts, because the thumbs up is a really nice number right now. <laughs> All right. As always, please leave us episode ideas at our GitHub repo at request-for-explanation slash podcast on GitHub. And thank you for listening. <laughs>